Thessalonians chapter 4. We are in a series of studies through Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. I said last week when we started on chapter 4 that uh, the first part of the letter, the first three chapters, are taken up with uh, essentially the relationship that Paul had. He started the church. You can read about it in Acts chapter 17. Uh, He was more or less run out of town by Jewish opposition, uh, but he was there long enough to get a core group established, a church going. And uh, he writes to them, encouraging them, uh, a little bit of defense of his own ministry in the face of criticism they might hear, but uh, basically reminding them of what they shared, what his work was, what the Lord had done, and just encouraging them in it. Um, And then in chapter 4, He gets down to some more practical matters concerning their Christian life, questions they might have. Uh, We saw last time he was concerned that they live lives pleasing to God. Thessalonica was in some ways like Corinth. It was uh, a town of uh, much industry, real commercial center, both uh, in terms of land routes, sea, uh, trade, and it uh, was not exactly as if any place in this world is, but uh, it was not exactly any place real conducive to godly Christian living. And so he encourages them to, to, to live so as to please God, certainly in terms of sexual purity, um, in terms of their love for one another in Christ, and just in terms of the, the decent quietness of their lives, living out their lives, uh, providing for themselves, working hard, uh, not not meddling in, in one another's business and so forth. Now, as we come to our passage tonight, it seems that Paul is writing to address another question that was on the minds of the believers in the Thessalonian church. And that was, what about those who have died? Here we've come to believe in Christ. Uh, Paul, you taught us to anticipate uh, the return of Christ, that Christ will return And yet some people we know, some Christians we know, uh, have died. And what does that mean? What does that mean for them? What does that mean as far as Jesus' return? And those are some of the questions that Paul is answering here. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve, as others do, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your help in studying this passage tonight. Uh, We pray that you would make our time, our study profitable, not only for the instruction of our minds, but the nourishment of our souls and the stirring up 
uh, of love for you and worship for you in our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Paul was concerned to address questions that they had about those who had died, those whom they had known, loved, and uh, and now had died. What happens, Paul? What about them? Well, Paul gets into the question here of the return of Christ. Now, you know full well that there's no end to the time that we could spend talking about the return of Christ, talking about various uh, ideas about how that is all going to play out. And what we will do tonight is pretty much limit ourselves to what Paul says here. And, uh, and he says a lot, although his concern was not uh, so much to entertain every theological question, uh, every speculation they could have, so much as his concern was pastoral. It was to address concerns that those who had lost loved ones had about what was going to happen to them. Now, particularly, uh, verse 13 is something of an introduction, and in it, Paul addresses two, or two general concerns that they have. He says this is basically what he is concerned about to talk about with them. Look at verse 13. For we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Basically, Paul is concerned to address two things. Ignorance and grief. Those were two, two needs that he saw in the Thessalonian church. Now, Paul says in any number of places in uh, the New, New Testament, I would not have you to be ignorant. Uh, and if there's anything that could be said about Paul's ministry, uh, it's that he doesn't want them to be ignorant about anything. He wants them to know Christ. He wants them to know uh, solid doctrine. Uh, and many problems in the Christian life simply and honestly arise out of ignorance. Knowledge of God's word, knowledge of truth can lead to all kinds of blessings. And so we need to be familiar with the scriptures, familiar with what they teach. Uh, an extreme example of that I think I've shared with you was Knox Chamblin, professor of New Testament at RTS when I was there uh, teaching us. New Testament, studying it in Greek, and his, he would always say, now this is, this is where a knowledge of Greek grammar can be such a blessing to your soul. And it seemed to be in his class. I mean, he would draw things out and show us how the grammar really just taught the gospel. And, uh, but certainly, if not Greek grammar, then, then the, the truths that we find in Scripture, Paul says, I would not have you be ignorant. And he does fill in some of the blanks, perhaps, in their thinking that they needed filled, the knowledge that, that does lead to blessing. Now, notice the term that he uses here, ignorance about those who have died. He refers to them as asleep, about those who are asleep. A euphemism for death, no doubt, because of the uh, unmistakable similarity, perhaps, the stillness. Um, However, I think Paul also uses what was not an unusual euphemism, for death with a little different meaning, perhaps especially in this passage. The idea of death, and I think he uses that term advisedly, the idea of death being temporary for the Christian. Uh, Just as when we are asleep, it is a temporary state and we awaken out of it. So certainly, especially in the context of what Paul is saying here, uh, death is but a temporary condition. It is one out of which we will awaken. What we do need to be careful, uh, there was a, a, a 
error, even a heresy that arose up based on, in part, on this passage, the idea of psychopanikia or soul sleep. Um, the idea that when we die, we essentially do lose consciousness. Our soul sleeps until the resurrection. Is that scriptural? If, if, if not, why not? Um, how would you answer that? Does the soul lose consciousness upon death to be actually reawakened to consciousness at the resurrection? A well-known example, familiar to you. Lazarus. Yeah, and the thief on the cross. thief on the cross particularly, Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise, which seems to indicate an awareness of being with Jesus that was to comfort him. Um, Jesus' parable, the Lazarus and the rich man, the the, the soul uh, of being within the bosom of Abraham, essentially in heaven. Yeah, that's another good good example. Um, Calvin wrote his very first book by the, the, no doubt, uh, best-selling crowd-drawing title, Psychopanikia. They probably thought it was a Stephen King novel, but it was actually... Calvin's first book um, addressing the question, the error of the idea of soul sleep and showing scripturally how that, that was not, not accurate. So ignorance about the dead. What, what about them? What, what are we to think about this? Uh, and then also concern over their grief. He says that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, he doesn't say that you may not grieve. Paul is not advocating stoicism. Paul isn't saying that um, even for Christians uh, who, who have the hope of the gospel, that death is, or that grieving over death is out of place. He says that you may not grieve as do those who have no hope. Uh, after all, Jesus himself wept by the grave of his friend Lazarus, who was dead, uh, in spite of the fact he knew he was going to raise him back to life. Death is not natural. Death is an intrusion brought in through the fall, brought in by sin. It is um, an enemy, and as Jesus uh, or Paul says, it is the last enemy to be abolished. Uh, it will be eradicated. Grief, yes, but tempered with hope. I like the way Calvin, to refer to Calvin in his commentary, uh, puts it. Uh, Speaking of this verse, he says that Paul forbids them to grieve in the manner of unbelievers who give loose reins to their grief. We might say they give themselves over to their grief. Give loose reins to their grief because they look upon death as final destruction and imagine that everything that is taken out of the world perishes. As on the other hand, believers know that they quit the world, that they may be at last gathered into the kingdom of God. They have not the like occasion of grief. Hence, the knowledge of a resurrection is the means of moderating grief. Paul says, I write to you so that you may grieve, but not as those who have no hope. Now, as we look at the rest of this, that's really Paul's introduction to it here. He he draws your attention to three things. First of all, theological truth of the return of Christ. Look at verses 14 and 15. The first thing he refers to is the coming of the Lord. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, uh, and this is something of a cre- almost a creedal kind of statement, you know, 
We say the, the, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed on Sunday morning. I believe in God the Father Almighty. Well, Paul, or Paul is, is basically rehearsing some, some kind of creedal basic uh, theology here. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So the first thing he says here is that as Jesus rose again, well, even so, Jesus, uh, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The return of the Lord, the resurrection of Jesus, being the basis for the resurrection of those who have died in him. And the idea here seems to be, coupled with what follows, that when Jesus returns... He will return with those who have died, whose souls have gone on to be with the Lord, that they will be part of this victorious, triumphant procession, the return of our Lord Jesus, accompanied by those who have uh, fallen asleep in the Lord. And then in verse 15, he says, For this we declare to you by word from the Lord that we who are alive... We who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, the living Christians, those who are alive at Christ's return, will not precede them. In other words, we might say in another way, uh, will have no advantage over them. Uh, they will, in other words, they will not be disadvantaged. They will not be in any way uh, displaced or miss out on the return of Christ. In fact, they will be right at the heart of it. The souls of those who have died will return with Christ, and as we'll see, their bodies raised up. Now, some interesting things here in verse 15. We declare this to you by a word from the Lord. What word is that? Well, it's Paul talking about simply his revelation communi- communicated to him by Christ, um, possibly. Uh, it also could be that he is referring here to his own authority, but Paul, as an apostle, is writing with the authority of Christ. Most likely he is referring to a statement Jesus made, perhaps, that was not recorded in Scripture, that we don't have, for example, in the Gospels, but that was part of the apostolic tradition, the teaching passed down. There is example of that in other places. Uh, For example, Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders In Acts chapter 20, verse 35, he says, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Find that in the Gospels. You won't, because it doesn't appear there. And in fact, in the ESV, the version I've got here, that's in red print indicating the words of Christ. Paul is quoting something that Jesus said that was not recorded in the Gospels, not available to us there, but they knew about it, and it had at least been passed down to that point. Actually, it was recorded there in Acts. Well, Paul may well have been referring to such a statement that Jesus had made that we simply, in our day, uh, it was not recorded in Scripture. God didn't think that we needed it. The Holy Spirit did not include that in Scripture. Another thing that's interesting here, that we who are alive... We, who are alive, does Paul think that he's going to be alive at the return of Christ? Some have argued that. Some have said, see, you know, early on, and again, 1 Thessalonians being probably the earliest letter of Paul that we have, 
First Thessalonians indicating, you know, some of the liberal scholars would say, well, see, Paul really thought Jesus was coming back very soon. And with the ongoing delay in Christ's return, in his later letters you see that he's adjusted his view. He's thinking long term. Is that accurate? Or was Paul simply saying that as a way that any of us might, with the possibility of Christ returning in our generation, thinking ourselves as being alive when Christ returns? Uh, I would I would disagree with that uh, more critical assessment of Paul's words for a couple of reasons. Uh, in fact, if you move to the next chapter, uh, chapter five, verses one and two, Paul says, "Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers." You, who have, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Uh, Paul was aware of Jesus' teaching, uh, that no one knows the time of his return. Paul, it seems, did entertain the possibility that Christ could return during his own lifetime. But it's also interesting to see how Paul includes himself as this we uh, somewhere else. If you go over to... Um, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he says, And God raised the Lord, talking about Jesus' resurrection, Jesus as the first fruits. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Paul is including himself among those who have died, whose bodies have been laid to rest, and will be raised up at the last day. Because Paul also recognizes that Christ may not return in his lifetime, and he may die and be buried, and he includes himself here among those who will be raised from the dead. So I would suggest that Paul is simply speaking of his own time, including himself among those who would be alive when Christ returns, though he obviously is fully aware of the possibility he may have died and Christ will raise up his body, uh, as with others who have died in the Lord, from the grave. So the point here, though, is that those who have died will not be at any disadvantage as far as the return of Christ or the, the eternal blessings are concerned. They are asleep in the Lord. Their souls are with him. Their bodies will be raised up. Well, then that brings us to the next section, if he's talking there, about the, uh, the theological truth, the basic underpinnings that he wants them to be familiar with. Well, then in the next verses, 16 and 17, he goes through the historical events, what will, what will happen uh, at the return of Christ. Look at verse 16. First of all is the, the return. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. You'll notice in the first place that the return of Christ will be a personal descent. The Lord himself. It will not be an emissary or an ambassador. He won't send Gabriel. But Jesus himself, second person of the Trinity incarnate, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, will return. Uh, it will not only be a personal return, it will be a glorious return, quite different from his first advent. There will be a cry of command with the voice of an archangel. Uh, whether the two were the same, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, and the sound of the trumpet of God, the idea of fanfare, the idea of a herald announcing the arrival of royalty, the arrival of 
of a king. Uh, for Caleb's birthday, we had the opportunity to go over to medieval times over at Discover Mills. Uh, Barbara's mother helped treat us to that. Uh, we split the cost of that. Uh, and they had a king, and any time he would appear, a couple of heralds with their herald, herald trumpets, which are really neat, by the way, as a trumpet player. Those are neat trumpets. But anyway, they, um, they would come, and they'd play a fanfare, and then the king would, would come in. Well, if you do that at dinner theater, how much more appropriate that when the king, the king of kings, returns, that it would be accompanied with the fanfare of the trumpet. It will be an overwhelming event. So personal event, uh, a glorious event, and it's worth also noting here, a public event. The return of Christ is something that will not be secret. At least it doesn't sound too secret to me. The, the fanfare, the shout, uh, the cry of command, the voice of an archangel seems to indicate something that's resounding. Uh, and in fact, Jesus indicates that every eye will see him, that it will be quite the public spectacle when it occurs. Now, the return of Christ is, is the first event here, historical event, 16, also verse 16, the end of the verse, the resurrection and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, we can understand that in a couple of ways. Um, with the return of Christ, the resurrection will take place. The dead in Christ will rise first. The resurrection will be a general resurrection, a resurrection of the righteous in Christ and the wicked outside of Christ. Paul's concern here is with edification of believers. He deals here only with those who have died in Christ and are raised to life in Christ, uh, those who died in their sins will also be raised, but not to everlasting glory and joy, but everlasting wrath and condemnation in hell. However, Paul's purpose is to comfort these believers, and so he does not address that side of it. He addresses what happens to the believers. The dead in Christ will rise first, now, the resurrection, yes, but it seems also here the sense of those who have died in Christ perhaps rising to meet the Lord first um, could be understood to be referring to that. And so Paul might even be saying, far from being at a disadvantage, they will actually rise first. That the return of Christ, the resurrection, the rise of those who have died in the Lord. Third, the, the rapture, verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Uh, the idea of rapture, the word rapture, from the Latin word repere, which means to seize, uh, to take hold of. Now, rapture perhaps is a word you may associate with other fellowships of believers or other theological ideas, but the idea is simply that of being caught up. I mean, once it's you know, the idea of joy, uh, seeing the Lord, certainly that's part of it. But the idea of, as Paul uses it here, to be caught up, the term Paul uses is harpazo, the Greek equivalent, I guess, of, of repere, the Latin term. Uh, Paul wrote in Greek, uh, not Latin. But the idea here is that what about us who are alive then? Well, those who are alive will be caught up to meet uh, with them to meet the Lord in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air apparently to join this triumphal procession of Christ's return uh, in glory. 
Now, Paul doesn't mention it here. He does mention it in 1 Corinthians 15, the idea that we too, while not dying and being resurrected, will be transformed. He said we'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Uh, we can't just go into heaven. We can't enter the new heavens and the new earth as we are. Um, the dead in Christ obviously are raised up with new bodies, incorruptible, imperishable. Uh, but those who are alive will not experience death, but they will experience the transformation of the resurrection. In other words, glorified bodies uh, immediately being cleansed from the, the, any, any effect or stain of sin, released from any, any power of sin or any indwelling sin. Power was broken, of course, with Christ's death and resurrection. And so then we will be caught up. We will be together with them, he adds, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then finally, reunion. Uh, we've had the return of Christ, the resurrection, the rapture of those who are alive. And again, not, not as this passage is any indication, not something secret, but quite public, quite evident and obvious to all with the return of Christ. And then 17, the reunion. We were alive, we were left, we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. The descending Lord, the ascending saints will be united, will be together. Did you note the, the withs here? Let me draw your attention. Verse 14, God, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Verse 17 uh, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them, the dead in Christ, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So as he's speaking to them, wondering what's happened to their, their relatives, he said, well, we will be with them. They will be with us. Together we will be with the Lord. And there's a reunion here. There's a coming together of those who have died in Christ, of those who are alive in Christ, and, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, Paul's purpose is, is as with the theology, all of his theology that we find in Scripture, is ultimately practical. It, it's to an end. It, it's accomplishing something. And so it is here. Uh, we've seen the truth of it, the historical events, and verse 18, the practical application of it. Therefore, he says, because these things are true, therefore, encourage one another. With these words. Paul's purpose isn't again to answer every flight of speculation. His purpose is to offer them comfort in bereavement. Encourage one another with what? With these words. Another way of saying it, with this truth. With these realities. You see, that's what enables Christians, yes, to grieve, but not to grieve as those who have no hope. It was interesting, as I was studying this passage, several commentaries referred to a letter that has been recovered, that, that exists, has been, has been found, uh, by a, a second century Egyptian woman. Her name was Irene, Irene, uh, the Greek word that means peace. Irene was not exactly overflowing with peace. She was writing to some friends, uh, a couple she knew, whose son had died. And in her letter to them, she says she's very, very sorry. She weeps over her friend's lost son. 
as she herself mourns the death of, of someone she loved named Didymus, perhaps her husband, perhaps her son. It's not clear. I assume they would have known. She says she and her family have done everything they can under the circumstances, which might include prayers to pagan deities, which might include funeral offerings or sacrifices. But nevertheless, uh, she actually concludes her letter with a note of despair, but nevertheless, against such things, one can do nothing. Therefore, comfort one another. Farewell. Against such things, one can do nothing. Therefore, comfort one another. Farewell. Irene so much as acknowledged she had nothing to offer. Comfort one another. Farewell. Paul doesn't end this section that way. He says, comfort one another with these words, with words of truth, which words of speak of the, that speak of the victory, the triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ over death and of his glorious return with those who have died trusting in him and his catching up to be with him, those who were still alive in him at his return. John Stott writes, Nothing comforts and sustains the bereaved like words of Christian truth. The return of Christ, the resurrection of the Christian dead, the rapture of the Christian living, the reunion of all three. You see, these are the realities that give us Christians hope in the face of death that allow us to say, O sin, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that Christ is risen. We meet on this first day of the week because of that. Lord, we know what it is to lose someone we love to death. But Father, we thank you that because Christ is risen, death does not have the last word. Jesus does. Father, we long for that day when we see Jesus, when he returns in all of his glory. We pray that that day would come soon. We pray that we might hasten that day through our lives, through our obedience, through our witness. Lord God, we thank you that while we do grieve, We do not do so as those without hope, but the hope we have in Christ, the hope we have in his return. Pray in his name. Amen.